find out. We have no excuse before God when it comes to our sins. We can't come before God and say, well, God, I I didn't know you were there. We can't come before God and say, well, God, I never realized. I didn't know that these things were all that bad. God, you, you have to lessen your punishment for sin because, well, here's my reason. Oh, so often we try to do that. And this passage is saying to us, you cannot do that. We have no excuse to stand before God that we can debate with him or or parlay his judgment or lessen it in some way. So this morning we are without excuse before God. First, we are without excuse because the knowledge of God is plain before us. We cannot say, God, I did not see it or know that you were there. Because the knowledge of God is present in all creation. So notice how this passage starts in verse 18. We're talking then about the wrath of God, that God has wrath for sin. In the same way the righteousness of God is being revealed in verse 17, so also in verse 18 we see the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness, all of it that is in the world. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This verse is telling us that God's wrath is something that he is revealing and his wrath here. Do not think of it as mere anger for sin. Like God is is losing his temper or or flying off the handle. When when we think of someone getting angry, when we think of of wrath, we think of something that is that is negative, that is losing control, that is an explosion of temper and anger. The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger in Exodus 34. But wrath comes as his judgment for sin. Wrath is an an attribute of God that really flows out of his holiness, that he cannot tolerate sin. And so sin needs to be judged. There needs to be an indictment against it. Wrath and love in God are not some sort of equal opposites. The Bible tells us that God is love. The Bible never tells us that God is wrath. Wrath is an extension of his holiness, his perfection against sin and impurities. In that respect, God had love in all eternity past, but God did not have wrath in all eternity past. He had holiness for all eternity. And when he created and when man sinned, His holiness needed to manifest itself in response to sin as anger and judgment. And so we see that God's wrath comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't look at certain things and say, these are respectable sins, but these are the really bad ones. It comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And there really is no place for you and I to hide in our sins. Those, those things that we do in secret that we wouldn't be embarrassed and ashamed about if anyone else in this room knew about them. God knows. God 
knows. Romans chapter 3 tells us in verse 10, 11, and 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to think for a moment, just think for a moment, how countercultural this really is. How, how against the spirit of the age this word of God is. We, we tell ourselves we are all basically good people who sometimes do bad things. The Bible tells us that, that every aspect of our lives is touched and tainted and corrupted by sin. Who is righteous? None. Who does good? No one. All of us have have turned aside from God. We reject Him. We, we do not seek Him. We have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What then do humans do in this unrighteousness and, and um, ungodliness that we have? It says at the end of the verse, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Think of... Think of um, Holding something down. If you are in a wrestling match and you get beat, the, the guy that beats you pushes you down into the mat. He pins you. He suppresses you, if we can. He holds you back. He holds you down. It's like, like putting something under a rug to hide it and then, and then holding it and covering it so it can't get out. We take the truth that God has given us that there is a true and living God. And in our ungodliness, as we are confronted with the truth all around us, that God is real, what does the sinner do? The sinner doesn't come and say, well, now, let me look at the evidence. Let me see these things. No, he, we, we take the truth and we suppress it. We, we cover it up. And hide it and, and push it down so that we don't have to confront the reality that God is real and God is holy and we are sinners. In fact, Paul goes on to say the knowledge of God is plain to all of us. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because or for God has shown it. To them. So the knowledge of God is, is obvious. It's plain. It's right there for everyone to see. There is a God, the triune God. And what do we do in sin? Our hearts are dead. Our, our eyes are, are blind. And so when we are confronted with that truth, we, we suppress it and we push it away, and we say, I don't want to deal with this. Did you ever encounter someone that suppressed an emotion or a feeling when they were hurt or angered? They just buried it deep inside of them because they didn't want to deal with it. In the same way, we don't in our sin want to deal with the truth. See who God is. Repent before him and say, I really am a sinner. So we suppress it. But the fault isn't with God. God gave us the evidence. It says God has shown it 
to them. What has he shown? He has shown the knowledge of God. How has he shown the knowledge of God? Look at verse 20 uh, as we follow along. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's attributes are evident in his creation. God has revealed aspects of his character to us by making the world. And it says that these things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's obvious. Did you ever get like a pair of of, of red tinted sunglasses? And when you put them on, you, you can't see anything around you that's in red. It's there. It's obvious. It's clear when you look at something. There is red right there. It's, it's radiating red color. But because you're wearing glasses that have a tint, you can't see it. That's what it's like in our sin as we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. Evidence that God is there is all around us. The problem isn't the lack of evidence. The problem is me and my heart and my eyes. I do not see it because I suppress the truth of God. I deny what is right in front of me. We're like the little child, you know. I can't see you. I can't see you. And we assume if we put our hands over our eyes, that means what's in front of us really isn't there. But it doesn't work that way. God's invisible attributes, which Paul defines as his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So notice here that that Paul is not saying that creation is God. Paul is not saying that, you know, if you just look around the room, you can see God in the bench and you can see God in the windows. And if we look out the windows, you can see God in the trees as if God is is one with his creation. That that's pantheism. When you say a little bit of God is inside of everything or panentheism, depending on uh, what particular philosophical school you fall under there. But but it is not like that. God is is separate and distinct from his creation. But what he does do is he gives us evidence of his character, of what he is like, of the the nature that he has, the divine power that he has. I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think any of us have ever met uh, Steve Jobs before he passed away. If you had, that's really cool. I hope you got his autograph. But, But if you were to pull out your iPhone... And I almost asked somebody if I could borrow their iPhone for this. But if you were to pull out uh, the iPhone this morning, Steve Jobs is not in the iPhone. That, that would just be creepy. Uh, that would be like some science novel where you download yourself into the computer. But you can see attributes of Steve Jobs, what he was passionate about in his creation. From, from what I understand, you know, he liked order. He liked detail. He liked, he liked the sleek styles. He was always upgrading, and the styles were always, 
always uh, try to be on the next generation. He liked computing power. He liked pushing the envelope. You can, if you have a new iPhone, anyways, maybe the old ones you can't see the innovation in anymore. But, but the point is, Steve Jobs isn't in the iPhone, but the fact that he created it shows you something about what he was like. How much more is that true with God in creation? You can't touch God by touching a tree, but you can see evidence of his power, of his might, of his majesty, that he delights in things that are beautiful, that maybe he has a sense of humor because he creates weird animals like platypuses and stink bugs. But he has this awesomeness in the way he puts these things together, the way that all creations fit, the way that that the stars in the Milky Way radiate at night. The scriptures say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech and there are Uh, And nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the heavens and their words to the ends of the earth, to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun and it goes on to describe the sun. But the point is the heavens, the earth is in a sense talking to us. What is it telling us every time you look at it? It is revealing that there is a God and he has eternal attributes and divine power. And and just the fact that they are beautiful, just the fact that the sun radiates light, gives you even just the, the slightest shadowy glimpse of the glory of God, of the majesty of God. It's, it's kind of like saying if if the sun is beautiful and can blind your eyes with its radiant light, How much more do you think the glory of God is beautiful and will blind you in its radiant light? There is knowledge of God everywhere. You cannot get away from it. It speaks to you every day. And we're like that little kid who we put our fingers in the ears and we shout, na, 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 na so that we can't hear what the creation is saying to us, so that we think we're in the right when we deny there is a God, because I'm not listening, I'm not listening. If your kids did that to you, and then they went out and they disobeyed you, would you let them have the excuse, well, I never heard what you told me. We are without excuse. We can't stand before God and and play it off and and, and pretend we didn't know. Do you remember, I don't know if you've ever watched this TV show. It's it's a little bit uh, um, uh, of an older TV show. But do you remember the TV show Columbo? Remember the detective? He'd always be like, ah, ah, just, just one more question. And he'd kind of carry himself like sort of a, a bumbling idiot who didn't know what was going on. And he would ask these questions to the, the person that committed the crime. And then he'd come back and, oh, I just, I just don't understand. And then they would explain something else to him. He, he'd act like he didn't know. But he knew. And that was part of the thing. He would catch them in their lies. 
The point is, we can't act like we don't know. Like it's not clear. We, we don't get to play the Columbo and be like, well, you know, I just, I just don't understand here. I don't see these things. Because God has made it plain. You can't hide from sin and you can't hide from the guilt of sin. You have some sin in your life that you're just keeping it secret and tucking it away and, and thinking that you don't need to bring it before God. Don't think that you're hiding anything. The only person that you are fooling is yourself. And we need the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. The second thing this morning is that we are without excuse because we abandoned the worship of God. So not only do we suppress the truth, do we hold it down, which is completely clear, then we go on from there while we've got our foot suppressing the truth and we don't worship God, but we worship the creatures or other things. Look at verse 21. You'll see that in our suppression of the truth, we go out and worship other things. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, they know God in the sense that the knowledge of God, the evidence of God is all around them. They see the, the indicators of His glory. This isn't talking about knowing God savingly, but it is talking about the general knowledge of God. Every human being is still made in the image of God. Now think about that. They walk around bearing the image of God. What does that take in terms of suppression to, to deny God in the very moments by your very existence you are bearing His image? Even in all the corruption that we have from sin, the image of God is not entirely eradicated in us. That's how far we are suppressing the truth. And he says, for although we know God, they did not honor Him as God. I, I would prefer translating that, they did not glorify Him as God. It, it is the word for glory or to glorify. They did not praise Him or, or give thanks to Him is the next word. You, the, the idea here is they knew who God was and what He did and they don't worship God. You're made in His image. You see evidence of His creation when you step outside. And rather than saying, praise God, isn't He awesome? You reject Him. We reject Him. And the result is we become futile in our thinking. And foolish in their foolish hearts were darkened. It's kind of like, again, when your child makes an excuse. I'm, I think it would be fun as parents to gather around and and, and maybe compare and see who has the, the most bizarre excuse that their, their kids ever uh, came up with. And, and, and you look, as, and we've done them too as kids. I had some pretty, pretty lame excuses. And you look back and you go, oh, that was just silly. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when, I used to, uh, when I was a kid, occasionally I would, believe it or not, I would lie to my parents. And, and my parents always knew. And, and you're like, how did they know? 
And now you're the parent. <laughs> and at least at this stage of my kid's life, when, when they lie to me, it's like, oh, you think that's, that's a lie. I mean, it's just, you're, it's stupid for you to think that you can get away with that. It's, it's, it's foolish. That, that is, in a small way, what it's like. Our, our foolish hearts are darkened. We, we think we're so smart. We, we think we have great answers to why God isn't there and why we don't have to follow him and, and why he's unfair to us. And, and they're just silly excuses. And they convey how dark our hearts are that we would think that we could get away with such things. I appreciate the Westminster Confession of Faith and in the the shorter catechism, the thing that they would use, the questions and answers they would ask to to train people basic uh, truths of Scripture. The first one was always, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's my purpose? Why am I here? The chief end of man, the answer was, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why did God make you? Why did God make you an image bearer? So you might enjoy Him. And in that enjoyment, you might glorify Him. And what does it say? For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him. God made you for this wonderful purpose. Not because God is selfish, but because He's so beautiful. He makes us to to be image bearers and reflect that beauty and sing it back to Him, as it were. And we think we're too cool for that. We're too good for that. We suppress that truth. And in this rebellion, it says we exchange the the glory of God for mortal things. Look at verse 21 and 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creepy things. Here's how stupid we are in our sin that we would think these things are brilliant. We have the opportunity to worship God and give praise to His glory and and come into His presence. And in our sin, we take that glory of God and we, we exchange it and we say, I don't want that. I will worship this idol instead. It's, it's like taking... A hundred pounds of gold bullion. And, and I don't know what exchange rates are, so let's just say it's a million dollars of gold. And, and you carry that in to the bank. And the bank says, do you want money for this? And you say, no, no, no. I'll just exchange it for some monopoly money. Like, how silly would that be? How foolish would that be? We take the glory of God. And in our failing to worship God and worshiping other things, we swap something that is worthy above all for something that is worthless. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. So Psalm 106, talking about Israel when she was at Mount Sinai, it says they made the calf in Horeb and worship metal images. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done these things in Egypt. Jeremiah 2.11 Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have exchanged their glory 
for that which does not profit. Rather than worshiping God, we go out and we put idols up in its place. And, and in the ancient world, they made physical things that, that looked like a man, that looked like an ox or a cow, that looked like snakes, that looked like birds, whatever it might be. They made these things. And they polished them and shined them and bowed down before them. Isaiah talks about this stupidity of this, and he describes a craftsman who takes this one big piece of wood and cuts it in half. And with the one half, he, he skillfully crafts it and carves things like a face and maybe a, a figure of an animal, and he sands it out and polishes it, and he, he puts it up on the pedestal, and he says, wow, this is my God. And with that same piece of wood, he takes it home, and he just roasts his dinner on it. What is the difference? They're the same piece of wood as Isaiah's point. That's how stupid we are. Ezekiel describes going into the temple and God says to him, go in and see the vile abominations that are committed here. And so I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Isaiah 41.29 says of worshiping idols, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty winds. We are blinded, Isaiah says in Isaiah 44.18. They did not know, nor did they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roast meat and have eaten. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before the block of wood? This is who we are in our sinfulness. And, and we might not in our day and age go out and erect physical idols but we do take things in our lives and make them more important than God. Even good things. You know, it's good to have some wood and make it into a fire. It's good to have meat to eat. And here, what do they do when they worship the idols? They take that same wood and they make an idol. They take that same meat and they offer it up in sacrifice. We take good gifts of God and instead of Honoring God, we become selfish with them and stubborn. And we say, these things are mine. Good things that God gives us. Home. Finances. Money is, is not evil, but the love of money is evil. Money can be used for good things, but when we hoard it, when we become greedy, when we try to keep up with everyone else and, and the status symbols, that becomes a form of idolatry. We walk away from God. The point of our passage is that we don't have excuse. We need to worship God alone. Not the things that he's given us. Those things cannot drive us. Another way to put it is, where do you find your identity? What gives you value in your life? 
Is it knowing God and the pleasure of worshiping Him and enjoying Him forever? Or is it in those things, created things, maybe things that we ourselves have fashioned? The third thing this morning is that we are without excuse for our sins because God handed us over to what we wanted. So look at verse 24. So we see this wrath of God uh, unfolding. God's wrath entails giving the sinner over uh, to the sin that they want. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to their impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies in themselves. God, part of the wrath of God is not just judging sin. There will come a day of judgment. That is the future aspect of God's wrath. But part of the wrath of God sometimes now in this life is is letting people get what they want. God often in our world restrains evil. And that's a good thing that God does. That, that wickedness is not allowed to go as far as they want. But sometimes what God does in judgment for our sins says, okay, if that's what you really want, I'm going to let you do this. Sometimes we do that as parents when our kids get older. We say the only way that you're going to learn is if you follow through with this. And we hope that they begin to understand from the consequences of their mistakes. Now, we're always right there to to help them and rescue them and, and do what we need to do to be good parents. But in this passage, it says that God gave them up to their lust, that God, in some way, the outpouring of God's wrath in revealing it is the uh, stopping uh, ceasing to restrain evil. Part of it is, is letting the human heart get what it really desires so that we might hopefully see how bad the human heart really is and what it looks like when, when sin just bubbles out of ourselves unrestrained by the grace of God. He gives them up to the lusts of their heart, to the impurities and what happens to the the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's interesting, in a kind of scary way, it's interesting that when Israel made the golden idol, the calf at Mount Sinai, it says as they were worshiping, it says they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought, brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That rose up to play doesn't mean they went out and played ultimate frisbee. It's a euphemism. It it means they engaged in sexual immorality. That idolatry and worshiping idols leads to, to dishonoring God with our bodies. This was so common in the ancient world. There were temple prostitutes, male and female temple prostitutes. You could go into Corinth and go into the temple of Artemis, and and one of the ways you would worship these gods uh, throughout the ancient world was you would have sex. You would have unrestrained sex, pardon my language, but orgies. You would dishonor God with your bodies. We think sometimes that we are so enlightened as 21st century people We don't have idols in our culture. 
You can't walk down into York City and find a statue to Baal. There's a sense where we've cut out the middleman. We might not have the visible, physical idol. But oh, our culture, we are surrounded by a world where we are told and instructed and encouraged to dishonor God with our bodies. Particularly you young people, we are, you are bombarded with it every day. It's on the internet. It's on TV. It's at your schools. It's at our workplace. We need to understand this for what it is. It's a, it's a form of lashing out against God. It's a, a form of idolatry. Dishonoring God with our bodies. Our bodies are supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we possess them as, as vessels to be used with honor for God. And part of false worship is to dishonor God with our bodies. Think about that. Why? You are made in the image of God. What is the quickest way to strike out in rebellion against God? Dishonor God in some way with your bodies. I think that that's one of the reasons we see the effects of sin in our culture. That's one of the reasons those effects manifest themselves with other body-related issues. Young ladies who struggle with eating disorders, or men too. People who struggle with cutting their bodies. It's because our culture has wandered so far from God. I don't want to make light of those things. I don't necessarily think that, that everyone that struggles with that, that, that there, there can be mental issues, psychological issues, issues that need deep help. But at the root of it, we need to return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way we're going to honor God with our bodies. Notice that it says God gives us over to our lusts in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than than the creator. The question for you and I this morning is, who do we worship? Do we worship the creator? Who do you honor with your body, with the way that you conduct yourself, with the way that you carry yourself? And if you're struggling with some sin or if you're trapped in something, come to Jesus. Find help. If there's some kind of issue that extends beyond the sin, some kind of mental issue or issue that needs help or some kind of addiction, get help with that. But come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The first application, everybody worships somebody or something. You can't say, we tend to think there are three categories of people. People that worship God, people that despise God and and worship other things. And then there's the sort of agnostic in the middle. There are only two categories. You are either worshiping God and glorifying him as God, or you are worshiping something else, either man or man centeredness or physical idols or whatever it is. You have to worship somebody. 
I'm going to quote the great philosopher Bob Dylan. It was supposed to be a joke. I'm going to quote the musician Bob Dylan. He says, um, he has this song, You've Got to Worship Somebody. You might be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls in the chorus, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody why is it there are all these false religions out there? Because, because the knowledge of God is all right there, and when we suppress it, we have to do something with it. And so we construct something else to worship, either a formal religion or other forms of spirituality. But at the end of the day, you have to worship, and you will worship somebody. Is it God? through the Lord Jesus Christ and being redeemed in him? Or is it the devil or something in man or money? Even Jesus says no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and man or God and money. The second thing, do I grasp the sinfulness of sin? This is a, a weighty passage and part of, part of preaching through Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is we, just, we can't skip things because we don't like talking about things like wrath. But you and I need to have impressed upon us the sinfulness of sin. I can't bargain sin away with God. I can't hold it down and say, well, it's really not that bad, God. It's, it's no big deal. I can't plead a lesser charge. Well, God, I, I just, I didn't know. How, how was I supposed to, to know and, and understand? We live in a culture where, where we say people are basically good, but, but Scripture teaches us that we are all at the core of who we are basically sinful. There will be no character witnesses that we can call before God's court that can say, well, this guy's basically a good guy. No, we lived our lives in sin, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. The idea here is that when you know better and you actively go out and do what you should not do, it's worse. We all know better because God has made us in his image and God has shown his glory in creation. You and I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that that if you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come before him today and confess that only Jesus Christ dying on the cross pays for sin. Receive that forgiveness. If you're a Christian and you've already believed those things, I hope that, that one of the tendencies that we have, that we sometimes do, and I hope we would learn not to do this, but we oftentimes minimize the sin that we have in our lives. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, I can control it. Well, at least I'm not doing these sins. Sometimes sin is, is like a dragon, right? And, and we think if we can control it, we can put it on a leash. 
as long as I only do it occasionally, it's not that bad. And and it's kind of like you occasionally throw that dragon a piece of meat. You occasionally indulge in that sin. But don't worry, I'm keeping it under control. What we don't see is we feed that dragon, its tail grows, and it comes around and it whacks us. And we stumble and fall in sin. The sinfulness of sin is dangerous. And we need to be a people who continue to flee to the cross. To plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us in all unrighteousness. Oh, that we would do that regularly. That that would be the habit, not only of our personal lives, but of our lives as we gather together on a Sunday to worship. We come here to glorify God because God has opened our eyes to the gospel. And what does it mean to know God? If we know God, we should glorify Him as God. And that's our last thing this morning. Only in Jesus Christ can I ever come back and glorify God as I should. It's interesting how the theme of glory and glorifying God is used throughout the book of Romans. And at the end of the book, in chapter 15, Paul has this vision. That the, and, and when I say vision, he has this dream, if you will. He has this thing that he lays out before the church. and He says, this is what the ideal church should be like. He says that we would all come together, quote, with one voice glorifying the Fa- God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given among the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What is God's purpose in redeeming you? What is God's? chief end to glorify his name why does god save you to glorify his name and so that we would come into the presence of god and and sing like we sing in his on our hymns his grace has done it all all to him i owe God has created you to glorify Him. And you and I rebelled against Him and are dead in our sins. But God has made us alive in Jesus Christ so that now we would come back and give glory to God. If we were to give glory to God just as created beings, how much more should we be giving glory to God because we say, look how awful my sins were, but look how great Jesus' love was or the Father's love shown to us through Jesus. God had all this awesome power and He deserved glory for that. And then... God decided to redeem those who had rebelled against him. Those who he should have judged. We need to know that the wrath of God is being revealed. 
But in the context, don't lose sight that the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. Let's glorify God. Who is like him? He's awesome. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, just give us a sense, just a small taste in our hearts of your majesty, of your awesomeness. By, that, by taking this time to, to reflect on the depths of our sin, let us turn our eyes up to heaven and, and look upon Jesus and marvel at what a great Savior you are. That you would love such a people that are vile and wretched. That you would send your son to pay the penalty for this wretchedness. The wrath of God being absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross so that our sin is completely and entirely paid for. Oh God, we glorify your name for these things. We praise you and give you thanks. Take your word and and through the, the gentle caress of your spirit, work these things into our hearts that we might return again and glorify you as you have created us to do. Lord, let us look and say you deserve all of the worship. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us for this last song.